We want to run down to verse 25 together. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him, that is Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt, and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now, Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day before they had been enemies with each other. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Amen. Now, over the next several weeks, as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke, you're going to hear and read titles from our bulletin that are going to sound familiar to you. You boys and girls will recognize these titles as coming from the Apostles' Creed. We're not doing a series on the Apostles' Creed, 
But we are recognizing some of the things that the Apostle Creed summarizes about the end of Jesus's life. Today, you'll note in your excuse me, bulletin uh, that we entitled today's uh, message suffered under Pontius Pilate and coming next week after suffered under Pontius Pilate will do was crucified and then we'll do dead buried. He descended into hell and then the Sunday after that we'll do on the third day. That'll be how we'll approach the the next month of, of sermons. So today we're going to talk about suffered under Pontius Pilate because our text covers the trial of the Lord Jesus before Pilate and Herod and then back to Pilate. I'm going to divide this sermon into those three distinct scenes. We're going to speak first about Jesus coming before Pilate the first time. Then we're going to consider Jesus before Herod. And then thirdly, we're going to consider Jesus back again before Pilate for a second meeting. So the first meeting with Pilate, then followed by Herod, and then thirdly, the second meeting with Pilate. Now, I want you to look at your uh, text again with me. Keep your Bibles handy here. And let's look together at this first section with Jesus standing before Pilate for the very first time. You'll note here in verse one, it says, then the whole body of them got up and brought him to before Pilate. Now, who's the whole body? Well, the whole body here is what we call the Sanhedrin. It's the scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests. It is that body which Jesus was brought before uh, when he was arrested. And notice here that they bring him before Pilate. Now, why do they do that? Congregation. Well, they do that because you know that they want to put Jesus to death. But here's the problem. The problem is that the Sanhedrin found Jesus guilty, though he, boys and girls, you have to understand Jesus was not guilty of this. But they declared him to be guilty of blasphemy. You remember how we left it last week when they said, you have heard The testimony, you've heard the evidence. What need is there for further witnesses? And what did Jesus say that brought that sentence about? Well, you remember that Jesus simply acknowledged he was the son of God. He said that you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power most high coming on the clouds of glory. And and what that phrase meant was simply this. Jesus, when he said he would sit at the right hand of the power most high, was simply acknowledging that he would reign with the Father and that he would reign with God. Now, the reason that that is not blasphemy, of course, is because Jesus is fully God. The Son is as much God in essence, in substance, as is the Father and as is the Holy Spirit. Let's just say that, too. That all three persons are equally and fully God. And so for Christ to sit at the Father's right hand does not contradict what the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, you'll remember, said God shares his glory with no one. So here you'll remember that the the, the Sanhedrin thinks Jesus has blasphemed because he's made himself out to be equal with God. And God will not share his glory with another. Well, the reason that's not blasphemy is because 
that Christ shares that glory with the Father. He being fully God. It is not detracting from the glory of God. It is an expression of the glory of God. That the Son with the Father in and with the Holy Spirit should all reign together. God is one, but he is one in three distinct persons. So this is why the, the, the Pharisees not recognizing who Jesus is, they have made this fundamental theological error. And, and we have people today who make that same mistake in, in different denominations. I really shouldn't call them a denomination because they're really cults. That's one of the things that makes a cult a cult is that they have a heterodox understanding of the Trinity. And so some of those, for example, who will come to your house and try to persuade you that Jesus is not equal with God the Father, really are, in essence, making the same fundamental error Christologically that the Sanhedrin is making. They should have recognized. You know, this. we saw this earlier in our study of Luke many, many moons ago. You remember when they tore up the roof and, and they lowered their paralytic friend through the roof tiles into the room because the room was so crowded. And you remember, what was the first thing Jesus said to that man? He said, your sins are forgiven. Now, right there, they should have realized because they were thinking in their heart, well, who can forgive sins but God? Yes, you're right. <laughs> who can forgive sins but God? But they, they had an improper conclusion. They said that this man could not possibly be God incarnate. Therefore, he's blaspheming. Well, they never got over that, obviously. And and you add to that the fact that Jesus, you know, exposed their hypocrisy and also that financially they were probably taking hits, as one of the commentators, Leon Morris, says, because Jesus has cleansed the temple. They have multiple reasons to get at Christ. Now, the problem here is that the Sanhedrin, though, because they're an occupied nation by the power and state of Rome, the Roman Empire, they cannot put anybody to death. And so that's why they're bringing him to Pilate. But this raises another practical problem for them. Is they they want Christ to be put to death. Only Rome can be put can put them to can put anybody to death. But here's the problem. Rome isn't going to care about a charge of blasphemy. Rome has a plethora of gods. Rome has gods everywhere. And they're not going to be offended if another person claims to be God. What interest is that to Caesar? Caesar doesn't care. You know, you have to realize, why did the Roman Empire persecute the early church? It wasn't because they said Jesus is God. They, Rome doesn't care about that. What's another God in the, in the pantheon of gods to Rome? The reason they got upset was because Christians refused to, to acknowledge Caesar as God, as Lord. And, and you know, that, that's why the early Christians got in so much trouble. That's why Polycarp was burned at the stake. You know, the, this Roman state is pleading with an 86-year-old man. Just say... Caesar is Lord. But Polycarp would refuse to do that. Because why? Because to acknowledge the lordship of Caesar would be to deny the lordship of Christ. Because Jesus is Lord over all. And you shall have no other gods 
And we know God has revealed himself in the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It's one of the most significant things at the end of Matthew 28 after the resurrection that's revealed is, is the is the the person, the being of God in three persons, clearly Father, Son, Spirit. You, sh- you shall call him now Father, Son and Spirit. So here, that's that's why we're where we are. The, the Sanhedrin wants to put Jesus to death. They don't have the power of the death penalty. So they need Rome to do this dirty deed. And the problem is, though, that Rome isn't going to care about a blasphemy charge. That Rome is going to say this is of no interest to Rome. We don't care if he calls himself the son of God. And, and, and so they're going to take no interest in this. So what are they going to do? Well, they've got to bring something that Rome will care about. All right. If, if this won't get them, we've got to come up with some other charges. We know what the verdict is going to be. It's just a matter of, you know, we, we've seen this before, right? You know, just, you know, they used to do this in the Soviet Union. You know, Stalin used to say, you know, uh, just show me the man and I'll, I'll tell you the crime. You know, I, I, the verdict is a done deal. We, we just got to come up with something for a show trial. And that's what this is. It's a kind of a show trial by the Sanhedrin. We'll, we'll make we'll find something. And, and, and we'll we'll hang them on that. So what do they do? Well, look at uh, verse two. And they began to accuse him. That is Jesus saying, we found this man misleading our nation. Number one, that's a very vague charge, misleading the nation. OK, two, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. OK, now that might interest Rome. And then three and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, that could be of some interest to Rome as well, if it's some kind of rebellion against the emperor. Okay, so they bring these three charges. The first one is vague. It's nebulous and it's probably going nowhere. The second two are going to be of greater interest to the state. You remember they. They tried to get Jesus on this earlier when he was teaching in the temple and they, you know, said, you know, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And you remember how Jesus escapes that dilemma by saying, show me, you know, a coin, bring me a coin whose image is on it. And, and the, of course, the image, boys and girls, is image of Caesar, just like on your money, you know, has we have presidents and, uh, and founding fathers on our money, Hamilton and Franklin and. And so uh, they, you know, they say, well, it's Caesar's image on the coin. He said, well, render to Caesar what Caesar's. If it's got Caesar's image on it, then give it to Caesar. It's not unlawful. But then Jesus said, render to God what is God's. And the, the really fascinating part about that is what is the image of God? The image of God is you. The, the, the great lesson that often is missed by commentators on that passage is that they're supposed to be rendering themselves to God through faith in Christ. You, where is the image of God to be found? What do we render to God then? If, if I re- render this image of Caesar to Caesar and, and the image of God to God, well, then you are to give yourself to Christ. So if you're here this morning without a personal relationship in the Lord, I, I, I would urge you to render to God what is God's this morning. You, you need to give yourself to the Lord. Uh, that's your duty to, to consecrate yourself to the service of God. So they're trying to charge Jesus with being a liar, 
misleading people, an insurrectionist, a rebel, a traitor to Rome, and maybe some kind of rival power, some type of uh, a civic authority, a king uh, that maybe will lead to some kind of rebellion from the Roman Empire. So they're, notice here they're not tying him to blasphemy anymore. That's what they did last week when we finished with them. But now the charge is coming along the lines of something that Rome might take interest in. Now, it's interesting when you look at verse three, Pilate seems to pick up on the third charge of the three charges that are brought against Jesus. You'll note here that Pilate. Now, you have to remember, Luke gives us a more condensed version than some of the other gospel writers here. But what Luke focuses on here is charge number three. And so Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is going to be significant later because here Jesus affirms that he is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. And Pilate's going to write that on the placard that's going to go above Jesus's head. He is going to say king of the Jews and he's going to write it in Latin, Greek and Hebrew. And. And you remember the Sanhedrin is going to take exception to that because they're going to say, no, he said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate's going to dismiss it and say, no, what I've written, I've written. And, and therefore we see that in God's providence that the, the title king of the Jews is over the head of Jesus Christ while he is on the cross. So Pilate takes an interest in that third charge. But Luke, giving us kind of a shorter summary than some of the other gospel writers, uh, shows that Pilate says to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Now, we're going to see that a few times over. And and it's interesting. I don't know uh, if Luke keeps bringing this up as a, you know, in, in the Palestinian culture, if you wanted to emphasize something, you repeated it. So Jesus would say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, you know, as a matter. This is really important. What I'm about to emphasize here. Here you have that that three times Pilate saying he's not guilty. He's not guilty. He's not guilty. Now, one commentator that I read, I think, said that if you add in another account, there's even a fourth. But Luke here seems to give us three that it's that you have that repetition of his innocence. And. So anyway, he, here's the first one. All right. So the first pronouncement, not guilty. The, the, the representative of the Roman Empire declares Jesus not guilty of insubordination, of rebellion or anything of the like. So verse five. Well, this doesn't sit well with the Sanhedrin, does it? So what do they do? They kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Now, this is interesting because now Pilate's a shrewd politician. All right. These guys get where they are because they're usually good at what they're doing. And Pilate is moving up, you know, in the Roman world. And Pilate latches on to, oh, he's a Galilean. Well, I know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't want to put this man to death. He hasn't done anything wrong. I'll kick this over into Herod's jurisdiction because he is a Galilean and Galilee belongs not to my district, but it belongs to Herod. And so Herod's in town, probably for the Passover. How convenient. So he sends 
Jesus and the Sanhedrin over to Herod. And he he will let Herod deal with this. Now, let me say something by way of application before we leave this first scene. Uh, And that is this, that the tactics of the enemy here, in this case, the Sanhedrin. But let's always remember that behind all that we see with the naked eye, we need to realize that there's a spiritual warfare going behind. So there's no doubt that the enemy, uh, uh, Satan, is, is behind this as well. But the enemy here uses a mixture of truth and lies. That what they try to do here is distort. And we need to remember these tactics. There may be occasion where you are accused of things of which you're really not guilty. But often, though, those things may get mixed in with things that are true. Now, of course, with Jesus being sinless and impeccable, there was not, nothing that they could lay against Jesus. But what do they do? Well, they try to take his words out of context and, and use them against them. What I want to say by application is, is that what we see the enemy doing to Christ, the enemy tries sometimes to do to Christ's people. And we need to remember the words of Peter that we not consider it a strange thing. If they come after God's people this way, sometimes they will accuse us of lies or being troublemakers to the state. You know, in the early church, they accused the early church of this. They, you, you know what one of the charges against the early church was by people in, in the Roman Empire? Cannibalism. Cannibalism. They charged us with cannibalism because we ate the Lord's Supper. Because we said this is his body broken for you. This is his blood. And so the charge of cannibalism was brought against the early church as a means of trying to persecute the church, to to arouse an unpopular sentiment among ignorant people. They also charged us, the early church, with atheism. Now, this goes for the reason that I mentioned earlier. You might think, wow, that's a really strange charge to bring against Christians, atheism. Well, you have to understand the Roman Empire's view of atheism was anybody who wouldn't worship the emperor. And so if you wouldn't bow to the image of Caesar, if you wouldn't burn the incense in front of Caesar, you were considered an atheist. And of course, Christians refused to do so. And so they, they were charged with not only being insurrectionists and insubordinate to the state, but also charged theologically with atheism. We see this in the 17th century when our covenant or Presbyterian brethren were charged in, a sense, in, a, in essence with insubordination and rebellion and insurrection. Well, why? Well, because they had these unlawful or illegal gatherings to worship. And why were they illegal? Well, they were illegal because the Stuart monarchy said that you had to do what the king said. The king is the head of the church. And and if the king says you're going to use the Book of Common Prayer, then you have to use the Book of Common Prayer. And if you don't like it, 
Well, then I'm going to kick your ministers out of their pulpit. Well, so a lot of ministers get ejected from their pulpit. Well, what's the congregation going to do? Well, they go out into the moors, into the swamps, into the hills, and they meet secretly with their pastor and they have worship services. And this, of course, gets back to the monarchy and they, they want to suppress this and they bring their English dragoons. And 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 so you have what's called the killing times in the last part of the 17th century, which came to an end with the Glorious Revolution, the restoration of William and Mary the, of Orange, come over and become king, and the persecution finally ends. But notice that the charge, though, was similar, that the Sanhedrin was making against Jesus. You're insubordinate uh, because you won't allow Christ to be king of the church alone, because you refuse to acknowledge the, the English king, uh, who is ethnically Scottish, but the king of England and Scotland, Wales, to be the head of the church, they were persecuted. They were recognized as traitors. We have to understand and appreciate that these tactics may be used against us if the culture wars grow worse for us. It may be more along the lines simply that we're recognized as insubordinate because, for example, we do not recognize same-sex weddings. It could be something like that. That because we hold such uh, unions to be illegitimate, because we will not recognize the state as an ultimate authority on this issue uh, with regard to uh, what constitutes a marriage, that we may be charged with some kind of insubordination. Now, right now, you know, that tension is there. Uh, but... You know, it may come to the point where in the future we will be viewed as intolerant. If, if, if your pastor insists that marriage be only between a man and a woman, which by God's grace, I intend to insist for the next 30, 40 years, so long as God gives me breath. But we don't know right now. You know, remember, this just the, the law has changed on this in this country and so while same-sex unions are now legal, um, nothing is being done about it by those who refuse to acknowledge its legality, those who will not support it. But that may change in the future. You need to, you need to realize that the, the trend which has already been set in motion may have future consequences, whereas now they'll tolerate churches who have a different view of what the Supreme Court has said. That may change in the future. You need to realize that, you, you know, that, and be prepared for it. Um, that it may come, whereas formerly the state was willing to live with that tension, it may be, for their own reasons, they're saying, this is no longer uh, tolerable. And, and you who insist that marriage is between only a man and a woman, uh, you must either change your ways or there are going to be consequences. For you, for your pastor, for your church, for your tax exemption status, for your ability to perform weddings at all or whatever it may be. We don't know. Uh, but this this issue of anthropology in our culture today is a serious issue. Um, and this is one of the, the focal points, I think, where the battle is raging right now. And, and I think that's why it makes these issues of men, women, gender roles, uh, very significant. Don't don't dismiss these things. 
that you're reading about right now. Because um, these are these are serious anthropo- anthropological issues. And, and as a church, we need to speak a biblical anthropology to the culture. And if the culture continues to rebel against a God set anthropology, I think there are going to be consequences down, down the line. And, and, uh, and so this is this is a, 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 a serious matter. And I think the churches do need to be speaking up on these things and, and not compromising uh, on these things. We're going to find out possibly who our real friends are in the future. Um, and, and, and it may surprise you who ends up not being our friends. Uh, I think many of those that we assumed were friends that turn out not to be have steeples on their buildings. And, and just be prepared that there are going to be people who are going to sell Jesus out on this issue for, for the sake of whatever. Peace, tax exemption, whatever. And uh, you need to be prepared. So long as you have me as your pastor, you need to be prepared. You may have to suffer because of me. <laughs> so you better think about that. <laughs> um, it, it may have consequences for you. Uh, what I say, you know, I, I said, you know, to Savannah when she was working here, you know, I said, you know, we've got a sermon of mine that far exceeds uh, on sermon audio the number of downloads. And I, I remember one time I said to Savannah, that's the sermon that's going to get me in trouble one day. The, the, the number one sermon on sermon audio is, I think it has up to what, 2,500 hits or so. It far surpasses the interest that anybody else takes in <laughs> anything I'm saying up here. And, and I said, you know, if, if the, if the attitude changes towards the church on, on the issue of homosexuality and, and it's what they consider tolerable, I said, that, that's the, that's the message that, you know, the, the FBI or whoever will use. And, and because I spoke I, uh, on the subject of America's rejection of biblical marriage is the title of it. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's the sermon that might get me in trouble one day. Um, but, you know, Jesus told us count the cost. OK, this is the savior you're following, a savior who is being persecuted, a savior who is being lied about. A savior who is being put on trial for things for which he is innocent. Don't think that we somehow are immune to these sufferings because now we are blessed in this country with civic liberties. And and I don't want to minimize those. And maybe, Lord willing, the civic liberties will win out. Maybe they'll win out. But I'm thinking it's going to be hard for civic liberties to win out. If if it's considered hate speech, if what I'm saying is considered is defined as hate speech in the future. um, It's going to be difficult for us, I think, to have religious liberty. Uh, If if I'm if I'm viewed as a Klansman up here, the equivalent of some kind of Klansman, because I say that marriage has to be between a man and a woman. uh, That's going to be I'm going to be swimming upstream. Okay. And, 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 and that's what worries me about what's going on on college campuses, because that's the intellectual future. If you want to see where we're headed intellectually, just, you know, look, look at the Ivy League. Those are your look, most of our senators and representatives come from the Ivy League. Right. So you just you want to see your future. Just look at those campuses and, and what's t- 
tolerated what's considered intolerable. And look, look what's happening on some of those campuses where a conservative shows up just to speak. And he shouted down and, you know, uh, um, so there's a lot to pray about. But, you know, the Lord often glorifies himself in those situations. And, and sometimes he does more in those situations than he does when the church is at ease, you know, in green pastures and still waters. I mean, we talk about the covenants because why? Well, you know, because they bore so much fruit in the midst of fire, you know. Um, and, and so don't be discouraged by that. Uh, that's just maybe an opportunity to really uh, let the gospel shine all the more. All right. I need to keep moving here. Um, I'm running out of time. Uh, Herod verses eight to twelve. We go to Herod. So Pilate, shrewd politician that he is, he doesn't want to deal with this case. He doesn't want to put Jesus to death. So what is he going to do? Oh, he picks up on the fact that I've got a Galilean standing here before me. And it's not uncommon in the Roman system that if a man is tried, he needs to be tried before a body of his own peers. He go, you send him to his home jurisdiction. Try the case before the court from which he uh, lives. And Herod is in town. He's in Jerusalem. Great. Perfect. This is how I'll deal with it, says Pilate. So he sends him to Herod. Now, Herod, of course, used to enjoy listening to the preaching of John the Baptist. He, he of course, was living in an adulterous relationship. And John the Baptist told him it was an adulterous relationship. And that set Herodia, his wife, off. And so she wanted him killed. And, and Herod, because of a foolish oath, um, told his daughter, you, you know, you can have whatever you wish. And, and she asked by way of her mother, to have John the Baptist's head on a platter. Now here is Jesus, and Herod wanted to see Jesus. Sometimes he feared that this was, you know, that Jesus was somehow John the Baptist brought back from the dead. He wanted to see a miracle. And yet, um, Jesus is silent before Herod. And I thought about this. Why is Jesus silent here and I think Jesus's silence before Herod is a part of God's judgment against Herod. That Herod is going to hear nothing from God. There's going to be silence. Herod has been cut off. And he is not going to get anything. Um, he thinks Herod thinks he's sitting in judgment of Christ. And it is the silence of Christ that is God's judgment over Herod. I think we um, need to remind ourselves that today is the day of salvation from this. Herod had the preaching of John the Baptist and he refused to repent. And now he has one greater than John the Baptist, but it's too late. God does not allow Christ to speak. And I want to make by application this simply this. That don't presume on tomorrow. If the spirit is calling you effectually to Jesus Christ, go to Christ. If the spirit is wooing you by his power to give yourself to Jesus, then 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from your sins quickly. Don't wait to repent. Maybe Herod thought he didn't have to repent today. He'll make things right in the future, but there's no future for Herod. It may be that the spirit is withdrawn from you. Maybe today the spirit is pleading with you to come to faith in the Lord Jesus. But it may be if you continue to resist the Holy Spirit, as Psalm 95, I believe, uh, tells us not to do because the children of Israel resisted the spirit in the wilderness. He said, don't resist the spirit. If you hear the word of God, uh, do not resist it. You may not be able to hear the word of God in the future. God may give you over, even if God you know, allows you to live physically, he may withdraw himself and your heart hardens and your conscience becomes seared and the word is of no use to you. You no longer have ears to hear or eyes to see and you cannot repent and believe. Repentance is a gift from God. And if God gives you the gift to, to repent, and if Jesus says, stretch forth your arm, stretch it forth. We need to seek Christ. Seek Christ for your soul. Don't seek him simply out of entertainment or curiosity like Herod. Herod's true colors, when Jesus is silent, Herod's true colors come forth in verse 11. Herod participates in the mocking and the contempt and the ridicule of Jesus, dressing him up in a royal robe of sorts. Men intended it for evil. Herod intended it for evil. But here again, I think God is using it for good. Again, it's another sign that Christ is king, isn't it? Notice in verse 12, interesting statement by Luke here. On that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Why did they become friends? They became friends because they had a common enmity towards Jesus. If you've ever wondered why do Western secularists and feminists and homosexuals Often in the culture wars linked with radical Islam. When why would a homosexual want to find some kind of coalition with someone who wants to throw homosexuals off the roof? Why do feminists find and make alliances politically with those who want to throw a clan's hood over their head, a burqa? Why would feminists do that? I would suggest to you verse 12 gives you some insight into that. That there's an enmity towards Christ's lordship. And it might be different points of contact for those various groups. And they may not agree with each other, but they have this in common. Pilate and Herod are willing to put aside their differences for the sake of dealing cruelly. Towards Jesus Christ. Then you go back. And I have to bring it to a close here. Because I'm out of time. You go back to Pilate. And what do we find? We find more pronouncements by Pilate. Of the innocence of Christ. No guilt requiring capital punishment. We see it in verse 13. And through 17. Uh, You see it in uh, verse 15. Uh, There's no guilt. Pilate says, requiring capital punishment. He says he's not guilty. Herod brought him back. Herod didn't find guilt in him. What is the significance of all this? Here's the concluding part. We see the impeccability of Jesus. 
We see that our Savior is without guilt and without sin and without condemnation in a world that is censorious and is able to find guilt and condemnation everywhere and anywhere. Jesus is the scapegoat. He will take the place of Barabbas. Barabbas, the guilty insurrectionist and murderer, will be released and Jesus, the innocent one, will be put to death. That he who knew no sin will become sin for us in order that he might die for us and be raised from the dead for us. Pilate wants nothing to do with this, but the crowds prevail. Democracy prevails. Here's a word of wisdom for you. Democracy is no guarantor or guarantor of righteousness and wisdom. Simply because the majority want it doesn't mean it's righteousness. Blessed is the nation, not who has democracy. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Amen.